Well, it is that time for us to begin and to uh, turn our attention to the Word of God. I'd ask if you take your Bibles and turn to Galatians chapter 1 and uh, have your place uh, or hold your place uh, at verse 18 as we're going to be examining verses 18 to 24 this morning. Um, I'm hoping that uh, our sound okay back there? Okay, good. It sounds kind of sounds kind of tinny here. Is it, is it a bit tinny? I don't know. I'm not a sound guy. So is that is that any better? Okay. Right. Um, let me begin um, by introducing this text, painting a. A, a scenario for you in your mind. <clears throat> I want to say that uh, when we think about the Apostle Paul, there was there was nothing in the world that was comparable to the calling Paul received from God, both to salvation as well as to ap- his apostolic leadership. Nothing at all in the world that is comparable to that. It was a divine calling. But the fact but the but that fact would not of course land paul a leader leadership position in, in 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 of any kind in the world today would it i don't think that we uh have to be convinced of that if paul had a resume for example uh, his bio would be uh, jesus proclaimed the gospel to me personally in a vision and then appointed me an apostle to the gentiles under education, it would say, spent three years in the Arabian desert learning directly from the Holy Spirit. Under experience, evangelized for three years until forced out of the city by death threats. And under references, none. Now the Judaizers, as far as they're concerned, Paul's claim was pure sensationalism and subjectivism. And they would not be fooled by any of it. They told the Galatians that Paul was evangelized, discipled, and sent by human authorities just like the rest of us. He was most likely saved by the apostles' preaching, educated by the apostles' teaching, and commissioned to evangelize by the apostles' authority. It makes sense that Paul, whose reputation preceded him as a persecutor of the church, would have gotten an audience with, well, revered apostles, doesn't it? Powerful and well-known authorities associate with other powerful and well-known authorities. Look, if King Charles of England wanted to know what the true gospel was, well, he wouldn't visit the nearest local Baptist church down the street. He would consult with well-known and respected clerics of the country. Most likely they would mislead him anyway, but you get the point. So apostles brought Paul along, and he receives his training and his calling the old-fashioned way from experienced practitioners in the field. That's how it's done. And Actually, this is how it's done even in the world. Fortune 500 companies hire Harvard MBAs with impressive experience in the field and great references. Even less impressive vocations recruit this way. The important question that our text raises in our minds this morning is this. Are leaders and those who hold responsible positions in the local church called and appointed to ministry the same way 
that applicants for prominent positions in corporate America are called? Are they called the same way? Or the same way that faculty and staff are called in secular universities? Or that men and women are called to political positions in America? Well, the answer, the short answer, of course, is no. God's qualifications for spiritual leaders are far different than qualifications one would need to fill any of those secular positions that I mentioned. But Christians in America simply don't know this, beloved. Maybe you find that shocking. But they don't. They believe godly leaders are chosen on the same basis as secular ones. Now, I've verified this in my nearly 30 years of pastoral ministry. Even local church leadership, of all people, are immersed in this thinking, and not just in the area of choosing church leadership. Many preachers fall into this category of using emotionally charged rhetoric designed to appeal to, the, to people's emotions that Paul repudiates in 1 Corinthians 2. Apparently, preaching Christ and Him crucified and depending on the Holy Spirit to do the rest is not, of effect, is not effective enough for them. Many local churches still tailor their church services to the tastes of particular unbelieving crowds that they are targeting in order to get them in and keep them in. Apparently, just being faithful and committed to expository preaching, a dignified worship service that is Christ-centered, the practice of church discipline and membership, and trusting God for the increase are really not effective enough for them. Then there is the area of soul care, where pastors depend on secular and integrative counseling and farm their people out to so-called experts in order to get help. And apparently, using God's sufficient and living word with reliance on the work of the Holy Spirit is not effective enough for them. But let's stick with godly leadership, okay, since that's the theme of our text. I think you would agree with me that when I say that corporations would never think to use the qualifications for leadership listed in 1 Timothy 3 when choosing a CEO or a CFO or the military when assigning a military leader to lead their soldiers into war, I don't think you would disagree with me on that's pretty obvious. But sadly, many churches don't consider 1 Timothy 3, either, when looking for pastor elders. Oh, no. No, rather, they, they take their cue from corporate America or, or the political world, and they look for all the wrong qualifications. Why? Because that's the way it's done. I've known churches that were quick to appoint men that had little knowledge of doctrine, practically no theology under their belt, no experience in how to minister the word to hurting souls because they were prominent men in the workforce. One was a CEO of a large company. Another was a savvy business schmoozer and could command people's attention. And another had years of, of responsible administrative experience. The point I'm making is that what God says is important for spiritual leaders and teachers in the church and also for Christian living is utter foolishness to the world. Paul hammers this home in 1 Corinthians 1. He says in 
starting in, in, uh, in verse 27, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise of this world, and what is weak in the world to shame the strong in this world, what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something in the world, so that no one may boast in God's presence. But we need to include in this, in, in, with the world, even the, uh, the, un, the uh, biblically untrained mind. Many Christians understand nothing of God's M.O., much less willing to trust him when it comes to appointing leaders. God appointed an, elder, an elderly couple, you may remember, beyond the age of childbearing to produce the son of promise. Israel was the smallest of the world's nations. God chose them to represent him. God chose second-born Jacob to continue the godly line, and Rahab, the harlot, to be in the line of Christ. Who would think? This is God's way. This is not how it's done. It's God's way. When Christians don't know God's way of doing things, they rely instead on means that are purely secular or seem right or logical to them in order to achieve spiritual ends. What all sounds so spiritual, but they neglect the godly means to the spiritual ends, and that is a huge problem. To the secular ear, as well as to the biblically untrained one, the Judaizers' version of Paul's conversion and appointing well, it just makes better sense than the true version. Which is why the Galatians found it so believable. But we know that God chose Paul, a persecutor of the church, a killer of Christians, to be his champion, saved him and appointed him to be an apostle by his way and in his own time, not by man's way. And this is why Paul said back in Verses 11 and 12, for I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that I, the gospel preached by me is not of human origin, for I did not receive it from a human source. I was not taught it, but it came by revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, we have seen up to this point how Paul actually proves that. He proves that he obtained his salvation and his commissioning directly from Christ himself Back in verses 13 to 17, he proved that he could never have learned anything about the gospel in his pre-conversion days as an ardent enemy of the church and persecutor of Christians. He proved that he learned directly from Christ, who spoke to him in an audible voice that those traveling with Paul on the Damascus road testified to Luke to hearing. They heard the voice. Luke says, Paul proved Jesus appointed him as an apostle at that time, which was also confirmed to Luke by the prophet Ananias, who was told the same thing by God in Acts 9. And he proved that during his first three-year stint in Damascus, Arabia, he learned from no one but preached the gospel that Jesus gave him, which the disciples there also confirmed to Luke when Luke wrote Acts. Now, in this next section then, verses 18 to 24, Paul continues with the retelling 
of the last part of his testimony, explaining how his life had changed after his conversion. And Paul says in verse 18, Then after three years I went up to Jerusalem to get to know Cephas and remained with him 15 days. Cephas, as you know, or maybe you don't, is another name for Peter. And Paul wanted to become acquainted with Peter. And he did. Did they talk about Christ? Well, of course they did. It was only natural that Paul would want to know what life was like with the master, those three and a half years of his public ministry. And Peter would have been only too happy to have shared the highlights. The time Jesus called each of them by name and gave his famous Sermon on the Mount, explained the parables to them, showed up the religious leaders, miraculously fed 5,000 people with a handful of fish and bread, calmed the storm, walked on the water, and that dreadful night in Gethsemane, the disciples couldn't even stay awake to pray. Peter denied him three times, and the rest, they deserted him. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. When the report from the women came that he had risen, well, Peter and John were the first to go to the tomb. And they found it empty, just as the woman had said. Only the grave clothes lay there undisturbed. And Jesus then appeared to all the apostles and to James in a particular order. Peter told Paul this in detail as well as the institution of the Lord's Supper, probably the current state of the Jerusalem church, and also his plans for the future. And Paul, well, he no doubt chimed in as well, told Peter his dra- about his drastic 180-degree turn from persecutor to preacher, how Jesus revealed himself to Paul on the Damascus Road and commissioned him to be an apostle to the Gentiles, also about his preaching, his Arabian retreat, And how he escaped the attempts made on his life in Damascus. They had much to talk about. And they did. They got acquainted. And in this part of his testimony, Paul reiterates that he didn't learn the gospel or receive his apostolic appointment from anyone in Jerusalem. He met Peter on equal footing. Both recognized the other's authority and that it had come from the Lord himself. The fact that he preached and prepared for three years before going up to Jerusalem would have settled the issue once and for all. But besides that, 15 days, really 14 days with a half a day and on either side to, to come and to go, it would have hardly been enough for Peter to explain apostolic theology to Paul or equip him for ministry. This was strictly a get-to-know-each-other visit, nothing more. And we would expect Paul to want to know from the one who was closest to Jesus what Jesus was like in his earthly ministry, wouldn't we? But we can relate to this. We would have wanted the same thing. In fact, we, we, we would certainly be this way with those that we, we might meet who are close to famous people that we, well, that we admire. So, so tell me, what's he like in private? What is his daily schedule? Does he have any hobbies? What's he like to work for? Is he strict? Does he have a sense of humor? And we would also expect that Paul would meet James. Paul recounts that visit too in verses 19 and 20. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, 
the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you, before God, I am not lying. Paul saw no other apostle but Peter, only James, the Lord's brother. And at the very most, this sentence here shows us that Paul seems to have understood that there was a group of men that were outside the twelve apostles who were considered to be apostles nonetheless. We pointed this out last time. They carried more authority than local church elders, and they were part of the foundation of the early church, and they're now gone. Barnabas was one of them. James, the half-brother of the Lord Jesus, was also one of these men. He had authority, and he was seen as the leader of the early church in Jerusalem. He would have played a key role. In fact, he did play a key role in the decision-making at the Council of Jerusalem. We'll have occasion to talk about that next time. <clears throat> Paul remarks in Galatians 2.9 that James and Peter and John were the pillars of the church. just makes sense that he would hook up with them. He says he saw no one else in those 15 days. No one else. Now, you might think that including this little bit of history would have hurt Paul's defense since the Judaizers could have used it to bolster their false accusations. See? Even he admits to having spent time with Peter and James. But really, it, it shows only Paul to have been honest and therefore believable. Yes, Paul says, I saw these two, but only these two, and only to get acquainted with them. Nothing more. Nothing more. Paul supports his argument this time with an oath-like language in verse 20. He says, what I am telling you, what I am writing to you, before God I do not lie. Paul would use this phrase later, <clears throat> before God, in a larger phrase that goes this way. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God or before God. It was a way, of, a way for him to bring affirmation to what he says to Timothy. It's used, this phrase, only in the two epistles that Paul writes to Timothy. It's used twice in 1 Timothy and twice in 2 Timothy. And here in Galatians, he uses this in abbreviated form with the same force to affirm what he is saying. He did not obtain his status his status. Uh, before God as a believer <clears throat> and an apostle by human means, but rather by divine means. And he really swears to this. That's the idea of the little phrase, before God I am not lying. Now, verse 21 gives us more proof of this. I went into the region of, Cilicia, uh, of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. Uh, we need to go back to the book of Acts for a little bit more detail about what he is saying here at this time. In Luke, uh, what Luke tells us in Acts chapter 9, verses 26 to 29, uh, elaborate on what Paul says here. So I just want to read that to you. You get a better idea, really, of what was going on. Paul said in, or it says uh, uh, about Paul, rather, Luke says, And when Paul had come to Jerusalem... He attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him 
to the apostles and declared to them how on the road that he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went, this is Paul, he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, that is Peter and James, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought Paul down to Caesarea, or rather up to Caesarea, and sent him off to Tarsus. I said down. Caesarea is north of Jerusalem, but whenever you're in Jerusalem, it's always up to Jerusalem and down from Jerusalem. That's the way it is. Paul's time in Jerusalem was spent not just getting acquainted with Peter and James those 15 days. Luke says that he went in and out among them. So when he was, wasn't spending time with them, he was preaching in the streets of Jerusalem, disputing against the Hellenists. Now, the Hellenists were Jews that had grown up in Greek regions of the empire, in Greek culture, like Paul himself. And he no doubt felt a kinship with these Jews since he shared their cultural background. Apparently, it didn't go well. <laughs> and these Hellenists sought his life. Just as Death threats precipitated Paul's departure from Damascus to Jerusalem, so they would precipitate his departure from Jerusalem to Syria and Cilicia. He was whisked away by the brothers in Jerusalem to the port of Caesarea in the north, and from there he sailed to his hometown in Tarsus, or to Tarsus, rather, in Cilicia, where we know t- uh, which we know today is modern Turkey just to kind of put that in a geographical perspective. Now, are you following his thought? He says, After three years of being in Damascus and Arabia, with a brief 15-day appearance in Jerusalem with only Peter and James, he was thrust back into obscurity, never having met the brethren in the Judean churches, ever, up to that point. So once again, there was no way that he obtained his status before God as a believer and as an apostle by human intervention, either in Damascus or in Arabia or in Jerusalem. The last proof Paul gives in verses 23 and 24 is is like icing on the cake of his argument. He says, they only were hearing it said. He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith once Uh, the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God because of me. So, Paul received no instruction from anyone, had not even been with anyone except Peter and James, and only for 15 days. And his gospel was well known to the churches in Judea, to the point where they even glorified God because of it. What that means is that Paul, the Jerusalem apostles, and the churches in Judea all preached the same gospel of grace. The same one, which is Paul's point. Not a gospel of works, not a gospel plus law, but a gospel of grace. Paul didn't even even, uh, uh, learn anything from these people, much less, or see these people much less learn anything from them. 
Now, in conclusion, it's a long conclusion. <laughs> I think it's noteworthy that on two separate occasions, Paul was ministering in relative obscurity. Oh, never thought of that. Yeah, the first time actually makes sense to us. He was newly converted, right? There, his three-year stint in Damascus, Arabia, was a time of sorting things out. Paul was putting things together. And being a Hebrew of Hebrews, with a tremendous knowledge of the Old Testament, he would have realized at the moment of conversion that Jesus was, indeed, the long-awaited Messiah prophesied. He would have discovered that he had been misinterpreting the scripture his entire life. We can imagine him saying to himself, oh, I see now. That's what Jeremiah meant. That's what Ezekiel was getting at. That's what David was talking about. Paul found Jesus to be the missing piece to his theological puzzle, and all he had to do was simply put him in place. And it all made sense. In addition, we might assume safely, even though we have no direct testimony from Paul or Luke about this, that the Holy Spirit taught Paul new revelation, just as he had taught the rest of the apostles. Do you remember when Jesus told the apostles, I have much to tell you, but you cannot bear it now. The Holy Spirit, when he comes, will teach you. So the Holy Spirit taught the apostles new stuff, which became the New Testament. Well, we might assume then that, that once the, new, the, the Holy Spirit obtained his new ministry in the new covenant, which was the permanent indwelling of believers, is it not possible and in fact even likely that the Holy Spirit would have educated Paul as well? Especially since later on he would have brought Paul along to write inspired scripture? Of course. Now this time... This three-year stint in obscurity in Arabia was a time of preparation for ministry. No question about it. Even still, Paul was preaching and preaching and preaching. What's more difficult for us to accept, however, is Paul's second stint in obscurity. As we read from Acts 9.30, the disciples took Paul up to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Ah. And then in Galatians 1, 21 and 22, he explains, Afterward, I went to the region of Syria and Cilicia. I remain personally unknown to the Judean churches that are in Christ. Obscurity. Now, at best, as best as we can determine, after the brothers in Jerusalem whisked him away to Caesarea and shipped him off to a safe haven, that was his hometown in Tarsus. Many commentators agree that the Apostle Paul spent several years in relative obscurity. Several. Now think about that. Paul is an apostle. He has special authority. And, and when we think about what he accomplished through three missionary journeys, we might think, wow, there could have been a fourth one if only he started earlier. He might even have made it to Spain with the gospel if only he started earlier. Now, we don't know how long several years is, at least three, 
but it could have been as much as seven. And while the scripture mentions nothing about Paul during this time in Cilicia, other than he was aggressively evangelizing on his own, we cannot help but wonder how he felt during these long years in Cilicia, in obscurity. Did he ever feel forgotten by the, by the apostles and by the, the Jerusalem bunch? Now, why do I bring this up? Well, we have been discussing God's way for spiritual leaders. His way is not our way. And we know that just by we know that just by how different the qualifications for pastor elder are in 1 Timothy 3. Nothing the world would ever be interested in. And therefore we noted that the church doesn't choose its leaders by secular means or what the world thinks should constitute sound leadership. So far, so good. We follow what God says. It may seem foolish to the world, and sadly to many uneducated and doctrinally weak Christians, but it's the only way God works, his way, which he's given to us in his word. We might also say then, in addition, that God's way for his own especially spiritual leaders or shepherds, maybe to usher them out of a particular concentrated ministry context for a time. Not for any sinful reasons on their part, but for any one of a number of other reasons. Like what? Well, leader may, spiritual leader may, may have faced severe persecution from unbelievers in his town that, that made it impossible for him to continue to evangelize there, as happened to Paul himself on few separate occasions. Or maybe he endured several pers- uh, severe persecution from unruly and sinful believers of a local church who don't want to put up with his sound doctrine and are offended by his sound teaching and theology that challenge them to grow, which is a common occurrence today, and I believe will only increase in these last days. Now, Paul had trouble like this as well with local churches. We're reading about one now. He almost lost Corinth. Or maybe he has to take a break because of health reasons in order to get well. That happens a lot. We know Paul was somewhat physically limited by a thorn in his flesh. Or maybe the particular church in which he ministered decreased its membership to the point where it is not able to support him and and any supplemental work on his part wouldn't be enough to sustain his family, so he has to leave. I actually know a faithful pastor who faced this very context, and after several years, he's still hoping to be back pastoring full-time again. There are, as I say, beloved, a number of contexts that can arise and push a believer out of a concentrated ministry for no fault or sin of his own. And he enters this unusual state of limbo, or so it seems, He's gone from a thriving ministry to relative obscurity. What does the Lord have for me next, he wonders. 
Will I ever be back at, at what I was trained and called to do? And if so, when and where? I've known several pastors who face this situation. And I myself experienced this on a smaller scale after I left my first church and before starting PRBC with many of you, as you know. It can be a lonely and distressing time for some who have been so busy about the Lord's work, counseling, discipling, preaching, equipping, teaching, praying, and interceding on behalf of members of this church, fellowshipping with them. More than this, it can also be a time when the evil one accosts the servant of God with rogue thoughts. God is finished with you. God won't give you the desire of your heart. You won't see the kind of ministry you work in for so long again. And while this situation is usually one that faces pastors, no Christian is free from this kind of of experience, of a desert wandering, relative obscurity. We have to believe that Paul was in a similar situation. Now, he didn't go from 60 to zero in a matter of days since he hadn't begun his formal full-time missionary ministry under the auspices of the Antioch Church. He hadn't been officially sent out by the Holy Spirit in the capacity of a missionary and church planner yet. But he was on fire. He was zealous for Christ, as zealous as he was when he persecuted the church. And he called and called by the Lord to be an apostle to the Gentiles. I cannot help but wonder if Paul was at all distressed after a few years of being alone in Cilicia, just waiting to realize his apostolic office in full. He was by this time a gifted teacher and preacher with a wealth of knowledge. He had something to give to the church of Jesus Christ. And I wonder if as one year ushered into the next and the next and the next, if he had a growing concern for his apostolic calling that he received on the Damascus Road, which by this time could have been as many as 10 years. Did he wonder if he would ever leave Cilicia for a formal missionary campaign with the full prayer support of a home church? We have no way of knowing this. The Bible is silent here. Nothing is recorded in Scripture that would indicate to us either way how Paul was thinking and feeling. The only thing we know is that Paul was human. And at the very least, he must have fought to stay encouraged as the years passed him by. He had to learn how to be content in all situations in life, right? He had to learn how to be content. Keyword, learn, which means so can we, by the way. He still held out hope for something more while trying to prevent his desire for a greater ministry from diminishing proportionally to the years he spent in obscurity. Now, beloved, it is never a good idea to speculate on areas that the Bible is silent, so I won't. But it is not completely silent on this time in Paul's life. And there are some principles that we can pull out of the Apostles' time in relative obscurity. And I'll put them in form of exhortations 
for all of us. Number one, there are six. Number one, be thankful. Be thankful in this time. The little that we know of Paul's time in obscurity, we, we know that he didn't complain. Now, how do we know that? Well, in the first place, there's no record of his complaints. And of course, I know arguments from silence can go either way. I believe, though, that there would have been, since we do have a record of Paul crying out to God in the thick of ministry to remove the thorn in his side that God put there. Do you remember? Specifically, God sent him a messenger from Satan to keep him humble and dependent upon him. Isn't that interesting? God sends Paul a messenger from Satan to keep him humble. He obviously felt that he couldn't be at his best in ministry with this handicap. The context of 2 Corinthians 12 is very instructive for us. And it would, and so would a context of Paul crying out for more during the time of obscurity. But there isn't any. Paul told us that he had learned the secret of contentment. He told the church in Philippi, do everything without grumbling or arguing, even if I am poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice, sacrificial service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. Isn't that interesting? You know when he wrote Philippians? Do you know where he was? In prison. He was in prison. This is a prison epistle. He was rejoicing. If you're complaining, beloved, in the midst of a sudden harsh change in ministry, you're not thankful for the lot God has especially tailored for you. So before you gripe over it, remember this. It is God who is working in you both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. Number two, be proactive. Be proactive in this time of relative obscurity as you're trudging through the desert on your own. While Paul's ministry was nowhere near the stature of his future ministry activity, he immersed himself in what he knew to be God's calling for us all, witness to Christ's saving grace to the lost. Paul was so involved in this work on, on his own in Damascus during the first stint that in obscurity that Jewish authorities sought to kill him. And the same was true later in Jerusalem. And after several years in Cilicia, Word of evangelistic ministry spread. And Paul tells, tells, the, uh, tells the Galatians in chapter 1, verse 23, that the churches in Judea kept hearing, he who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith he once tried to destroy. So in these times, be about the Lord's work in whatever capacity you can. Be busy for him until he gives you the desire of your heart. Be busy. Number three. Number three. Be a blessing to others in the body of Christ during this time. Galatians 1.24 records for us the result of the Judean churches that heard of Paul's evangelistic labors in obscurity. It says, they glorified God because of me. It's a great thing, beloved, when you can encourage the body of Christ by your labors and to give God the glory for the work he's doing through you. In times of relative obscurity, the last thing that you want to do is engage in morbid introspection. 
that leads to, leads to self-pity. And that's a, that's a terrible place to be. The others oriented, be others oriented and minister to their needs. Number four. Number four, trust God's perfect plan and timing. As you wait on the Lord, trust that his plan for you or for your life is perfect. And the timing it unfolds is perfect. When Barnabas came from Jerusalem to Antioch and was amazed at the great influx of Gentile converts coming in, he knew he, knew he needed help in discipling them. And he knew exactly where to find his help. Luke records in Acts 11.25 that Barnabas went to Tarsus to search for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught large numbers. It was following this year of teaching that the Holy Spirit called Paul to missionary work and sent him out through the auspices of the Antioch church. Uh, I said there were six. I'll stop at five because I misnumbered them. (laughs) Number five, work on your spiritual growth. Work on your spiritual growth. This time of reprieve away from what you're used to is a great time to grow in your faith. Luke gives an account of Paul's first stint into obscurity, and he says in Acts 9.22, Saul grew stronger. We're reminded of other men that God used in great ways who also found themselves in long periods of relative obscurity. Joseph was in prison for at least two years that we know of, but quite possibly served as many as 13. How do we come up with that number? Well, he left when he was 17 and, and sold into slavery. And he wasn't appointed head over Egypt until he was 30. Moses was banished to the desert at age 40 to live there for 40 years. God called him at 80. There's hope for you, some of you. <laughs> David was anointed king at age 17. And he didn't sit on the throne until he was 30, constantly on the run from Saul. At times, David even questioned the oracle Samuel brought to him that said, you will be king. And in each case, though, these these times of obscurity became times for their preparation for great things. Such times are God's way of developing us further in ministry. From the world's point of view, we're a failure. From God's point of view, we're growing, we're learning, we're being prepared further for the next stage of ministry. Do not be discouraged if you happen to be in this particular stint of obscurity. God has a plan. Be about these things And God will then move you to the next step. You'll be ready. And we can rejoice with you. Father, thank you for this time together. That we can enjoy spending time in the Word. We thank you for this this bio from Paul. And to know and to understand that 
your way for appointing leaders is a is a biblical and divine way and it's a way that we must we must recognize and and cherish and maintain and and apply we must reject the uh, the secular ways and means of of leadership or of running a church or preaching and counseling and any other aspect of ministry father we pray that we would cling to the truth and we would let it guide us rightly in these areas that you might be rightly and properly adored and honored and glorified and that your church may benefit we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.